Totally Football Show at the World Cup. Welcome to Moscow. Unbelievable, unbelievable this. Yippee Mother Russia, it's on. 32 teams on the starting line and the hosts get things underway with a huge 5-0 win. Gazinski, Cheryshev, Juba, Golovan tearing into the Saudi half like it was Ukraine's sovereign territory. What awaits on Friday? Potentially, Mo Salah's return as Egypt take on Uruguay. There's Morocco and Iran, to quote a flock of seagulls, and Spain-Portugal. Mmm, quiet build-up there. It's all in Totally at the World Cup. Hey, listeners, it's been called a bloated spectacle with none of its original spirit totally enthralled to money. But hey, it's our podcast and we'll do it however we want. And that means every single day when the group stages are on, here with you right after the day's last game, telling you what's what. And we're joined in this inaugural show by Duncan Alexander. Hello. By Ian McIntosh. Hello. And by Michael Cox. Hi, James. Hi to you, Michael. What's been your favourite bit so far? I quite enjoyed that opening game, actually. Um, I thought it was going to be very tight and cagey, but uh, Russia ran riot. And uh, some lovely goals. I mean, both the goals from Cheryshev were fantastic in different ways. Who is this Cheryshev fellow? It just so happens, in 2013, he was one of my men to watch in an under-21 tournament. Was he? Yeah, he's the son of a Russian international, I think, Dmitry. Uh-huh. Uh, Had you been watching him ever since? Here? No, not really. I don't even know why he's the only one I remember from it. But yeah, that, that wasn't a bad start, was it? You're listening to the Totally Football Show, Totally at the World Cup, and in association with Paddy Power. The Moscow Papers, before this, Duncan, doomed to failure, destined f- for defeat. These were actual headlines. But instead, we got, put it in perspective for us. The biggest opening win by a host since when? Since 1934, Italy beating USA 7-1. So we've waited a long time uh, for that. And, uh, I mean, it was funny because everyone I knew was walking around saying, oh, Saudi Arabia have got a really good chance. They're 9-1. The bookies have got it wrong. But turns out they didn't. Right. The problem here is that Russia still might be bad. You know, perhaps not quite as bad as, as it was made up. They might still not get through. Saudi Arabia, good God, they were absolutely abject. I mean, there's a a little bit of, yeah, there's technical ability there, there's nice quick passes, but there's nothing to link it up. And when they fall out of position, by God, Russia just had so much space um, to to play with there. Can you recall seeing a team this bad at the World Cup? I know we're basing this on just 90 minutes, but (laughs) worst performance at a World Cup since, Michael? Well, I mean, Saudi Arabia did lose 8-0 in 2002. Um, right. I mean, I didn't think they were awful. But that was against Germany. That, that can happen. Yeah. yeah. I, personally, I didn't think Saudi Arabia were awful, awful in a technical sense, but I thought tactically they left so many gaps at the back and the goals they conceded, well, a couple of them were really quite poor defensively. The first one, I'm not sure what the fullback was doing there. I don't think he was fouled. I think he just slipped. I mean, to go back to the Russian newspapers, it probably is a fair assessment of Russia. But I think sometimes when you just watch your own team at international level, you forget that actually the standard across the board at the World Cup isn't great. And I think that's been notable actually from our 
preview shows. You know, Sasha was very down on Russia. Yeah. Christoph was negative on Belgium. But actually, apart from the top five, there's not that many really great teams here. So you can kind of get by without being a world a world beating team. And uh, yeah, I mean, even if Russia go out of the group stage, at least they've kind of had their moment because that was a really good performance and some well, they, great goals. They've already doubled, more than doubled their goal total from the last World Cup. So they played in. So <laughs> when was the last time they had a win, Duncan? It was way back in 2002, just at off, the World Cup. But just, just as a national side, when was their last win? I think they were on a run of eight or nine without a win. Right. But and then I, Faith hasn't had a clean sheet in a year. So in all, all in all, this was fantastic. Just speaking of, of, of Sasha Gurionov, a lot of listeners actually tweeting and concerned about his <laughs> well-being after his comments here in our previous shows. He's uh, He himself has uh, written in to say that he's safe on the ground floor in Sicily. He's on holiday. And he says midfield did well under no pressure whatsoever. Uh, worse than humanly possible. I think that's... Uh, referring to Saudi Arabia, Juba doing a goal is one of the great sights in football. He loves the expression "doing a goal," doesn't he, Sasha? Yeah, I, li- I like it actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if anyone can do a goal, it is Juba because he, he well, you know, he's not the most graceful of men, but he uh, he planted the header really well as um, soon as he came on. I mean, it was just like, why hasn't he been there? See, he was so much bigger than everybody else, and they were already struggling to deal with any aerial ball that came in. They're not the most physical of sides, are they, no. Saudi Arabia? Um, I am asking the question that I think is on a lot of people's lips right now: How many goals is Cavani or Salah going to get? Could they wrap up the Golden Boot in just their next game against Saudi Arabia? Maybe. I mean, I tend to think that was the most open that Saudi Arabia will play. I think against the better teams in the group, and I think the other two probably are better. It'll be maybe more defensive um, and won't give quite so much space. But yeah, that was a, a quite abject defensive performance. Anything else we should draw from that opening game, Michael? Well, I think from Russia's point of view, the fact that Zhigoyev went off, I know they coped without him, but um, I mean, he probably is their best player. And I do think that's a blow in the long run. Um, I know Cheryshev came on and did really well. But um, I think in those tight games, Yagoyev's the kind of player that can unlock the door. So that is a blow. Mm. Well, it is the kind of scoreline and the kind of performance that makes you sit up and take notice. Just point out that at 66 to 1, if you put £10 on Russia to win the World Cup, you'll win absolutely nothing. So there's that. Uh, right. Just before kickoff, we saw Robbie Williams doing the worst performance by an Englishman at the Lushniki since John Terry, I think, <laughs> in the opening ceremony. What what did you make of this? Oh look, we can we can hear actually that there is Robbie in the background. Uh, Ian, how did you feel about this? I thought it was all right. It's an opening ceremony. He had a very nice suit on. I very much liked his suit. But it was just a bit. It was, it was just very low, but I called it on Twitter the, the, the sparsest inauguration since Trump's <laughs> and probably organised by the same people, actually, when you think about it. <laughs> but it just was quite flat, wasn't it? Few men in this room know more about Robbie Williams than you do, Michael. Yeah. Why, why, why did Russia call up Robbie Williams to showcase their, you know, to set the scene for their big tour? Well, I gather he's actually quite popular in Russia, although the, the slight confusion is that he had a song two years ago called Party Like a Russian, yeah. which was a little bit controversial in Russia, yeah. and obviously he wasn't asked to, to perform that. Although, is it, when you think of some of the lyrics in there, and I, I don't have them to have, oh, actually I do, <laughs> takes a certain kind of man with a certain reputation to alleviate the cash from a whole entire nation, take my loose change and build my own space station. Those are things that some people from one end of the moral spectrum might go that's not good other people might go yeah <laughs> yeah that's a fair point maybe that's why he got the call up right um but i know tony cruz is a big fan isn't he yeah every every uh year he wishes robbie williams a happy birthday 
with the with the phrase, uh, with the hashtag legend afterwards. So right. he will have been happy. You've read a book about Robbie Williams, haven't you, Michael? Yeah, I shouldn't have mentioned this. I know. I mean, I'm not a particular fan, but it's a genuinely. It's called Feel. It came out about 15 years ago. Right. It's a genuinely interesting. Last insight. time he was remotely relevant. Well, you could say that, yeah. yeah. But it's a genuinely interesting insight into give, the give us the perils of fame, which okay. I'm, I, you don't need any explanation of, of course. Because I'm not James. famous. Well, you don't need explaining oh, the I perils see, of right. fame. Okay. <laughs> give us your favourite Robbie Williams anecdote. I think my favourite anecdote from the book is that he is suffering really badly from exhaustion towards the end of a world tour, not because of the tour, but because he's playing football manager for five hours a night. And he meets some girl in Italy, I think, who's a massive Robbie fan, and they spend the night together, and she tells, uh, sells her story to an Italian magazine. And uh, part of the quotes in the magazine read, I don't know why he was lying to me. I know he's Robbie Williams. I was here to see him. Um, but he just kept on banging on about being a Scottish football manager. <laughs> and actually, he was in charge of Cardiff, so she's embarrassed herself oh, there. No, right. Um, was there also a story about angels? That's not from the book. That's further Robbie Williams' knowledge. But yeah, he, he bought the rights to the song um, off an Irish bloke he met whilst he was having a big... Uh, boozing session somewhere in Ireland about 20 years ago. And this guy, what, said, I've got a song, would you like it? Yeah, and he sold it to, to Rob, as I believe he likes to be called, not Robbie. Okay. For a pitifully low sum, which obviously has worked out pretty badly, because I imagine he would have got far more from that just for the rights tonight. Mm. But that's all I know about him, okay? Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, a big day all over Russia as this World Cup gets underway. And dropping by the Luzhniki was ESPN's Mark Ogden, who joins us now on the line to give us a little bit of local flavour. Mark, how are you? I'm good, James. How are you? I, I'm very well. Um, first of all, can we tick the box marked carnival atmosphere? <laughs> uh, I think we can. I think the Russians are, are quite a, a stern uh, nationality at times, but I think today they really let loose. And uh, for the World Cup itself, this is the perfect result. You know, the, the host nation that was kind of fearful of what would happen and not a very good team to win 5-0 to go into the game against Egypt on Tuesday, knowing that another win will take him to the second round. It's perfect. That Russia needs to embrace this tournament. I think today it has done. So far then in your travels, have you not seen a, a nation that, that's fully got involved in World Cup fever? I've been based in Moscow for the last four or five days and Moscow has been an absolute carnival of South American fans, you know, Colombians, there's loads of Peruvians, Argentinians, no Russians. Now, I guess if, if you're, you know, if you're from the country, you don't, automatically head towards Red Square to celebrate the World Cup but there's been a lack of you know flags of colour it, it was really strange today going to the game until you got to the metro station you actually didn't see anyone you know embrace the World Cup there's, I was in Brazil four years ago and you knew in Brazil there's a World Cup happening it's been a little bit different here but I think today is, is just what they need actually All right. what, What's been the thing you've enjoyed most so far Mark? I think for me the most enjoyable thing has been to see all the you know the Peruvian fans because you know Peru haven't been at the World Cup since 1982 and it's as though the whole of Peru has decamped to Moscow because it's just a sea of white and red shirts. So they've been fantastic playing the pipes all through, you know, every hour of the day, seemingly. Brilliant. All right, where are you heading next? I'm off to Volgograd on Saturday for England against Tunisia on Monday. All right. What's your hot take on that, Mark? I think, you know, I think we've seen today that there are weaker teams in the tournament. I think Saudi Arabia are one of the weaker teams. I think Tunisia, again, may fit that bracket. I think if they do, England need to be as ruthless as the Russians were today. And I think it's important to win your first game. If you can win it well, it just makes such a difference going forward in terms of morale and confidence. Well, you can read more of that kind of thing at ESPN FC. 
sun, sea, sand and football. Watching the World Cup on holiday sounds like paradise, until you try watching a game online and realise seconds before kickoff that it's blocked. Well, instead of bemoaning your decision to book a trip during a tournament that comes around once every four years, you need to get yourself a virtual private network from bestvpn.com and you'll be able to access the internet freely wherever you are this summer, all for less than the price of a pint. Because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can get 70% off a VPN by visiting bestvpn.com slash podcast. Bestvpn.com will set you up with a VPN in minutes so you can watch the football from your deck chair or by the pool. And when it comes to security, bestvpn.com will also protect your internet activity from prying eyes on open Wi-Fi networks. No matter where you are in the world, you can access your online home comforts with a VPN. So unlock the internet today with bestvpn.com. Find out more and get 70% off by heading to bestvpn.com slash podcast. So Friday, day two, these are the games. 1pm UK time, way out east in Ekaterinburg. The most easterly point, actually, of this World Cup. There's Egypt-Uruguay, that's Salah against Suarez, if Mo is fit. At 4pm at the Krestovsky Stadium in St. Petersburg, which is the most northerly venue, it's Group B action as Morocco take on Iran, if... The Iranians can find some boots. More on that later. And at 7pm, from the most southerly stadium, the Fisht Stadium in Sochi, it's Portugal-Spain. Wow, how about that? One of the biggest games, of course, of the group stages, made even bigger by Spain, dumping their boss two days before the tournament began. Lopetegui getting banished by the Spanish. Fernando Hierro taking his place. And earlier, producer Ben spoke to Alvaro Romeo from TalkSport International to get his take. There has been a mixed reaction to what Jose Luis Rubiales decided. Uh, the sacking of Julian Lopetegui obviously was never going to be an easy decision to make. But uh, I think that Fernando Hierro is going to try to give some continuity to what Julian Lopetegui has done. As a coach, uh, he doesn't have a good record. Uh, he's got a 40% of winning ratio in the Spanish second division in only one career season as a manager. Uh, but as a leader, he can be very influential. Uh, he's got four World Cups under his belt as a player uh, and few more international events with Spain as part of the coaching staff. In fact, when Spain played against uh, Switzerland in the opening game of the World Cup 2010, Spain lost that game. And uh, it is said that Fernando Hierro was the main motivator of the players uh, in the run to winning the World Cup in 2010. So I believe that we don't have a very good coach in front of us, but probably he can be a really good leader for the Spanish national team. And all that combined with experienced players like Sergio Ramos, Gerard Piqué, Andres Iniesta and so on, I think that Spain is kind of well uh, leaded and quite, quite well represented. And uh, can you give us some team news? What are you hearing from the camp? Well, the, the main uh, concern is uh, Carvajal. Uh, let's see if he's fit for the game. He's been training normally this week, uh, but perhaps uh, the game tomorrow against uh, Portugal can come a little bit too early and uh, the new manager, Fernando Hierro, is pondering to play Nacho in that right-back position just to stop Cristiano Ronaldo, who is the main threat of Portugal. Wow, what a thing, eh? Here's Alessio Di Maria saying, is Lopetegui's departure from Spain the biggest shock before a World Cup since Roy Keane and Saipan? What do you think, Duncan? 
Well, in terms of someone actually leaving from mm. March uh, out of the World Cup, I guess so, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot made of his how good Spain have been under him. I mean, they've scored 51, uh, 61 goals, which is obviously an average over three a game, but, you know, that's Spain in qualifiers and friendlies. So you would uh, they basically need to do a Chelsea, which is all the senior players just say, well, we don't really need a manager and just carry on. Whether they can do that, we'll see. Right. I mean, they're not going to be entirely bereft of any adult supervision because Fernando Hierro's come in and also uh, Lopetegui's assistant, who was with a lot of them at the under-21s. Is that right, Michael? Yes, it is. OK. New manager bounce there, do you think? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I've never never heard of that for an international tournament. Maybe it could work out. I mean, I think it's difficult really for us to predict how it's going to go. We don't really know what the atmosphere inside the camp is. It all depends on... I mean, the players supposedly didn't want him to go. Um, which I think might cause a, a bit of a problem. Yeah, I mean, there's reports of the Barcelona players and the Madrid players having differences of opinion, which is a which is you know for long-term fans of international football is a nice return to the to the good old days. <laughs> Certainly, Ramos uh, supposedly was vocal in his desire for Lopetegui to stay. I mean, it's bizarre, bizarre how badly it's been handled by the young manager and indeed by Real Madrid, who now gone and had a press conference announcing him, presenting him. Uh, about an hour before Spain do their eve of their first match press conference. Yeah, and it was just also unexpected in the sense that even Zidane leaving was unexpected. The appointment of Lopetegui was completely out of the blue. I mean, there were lots of rumours, but he wasn't really cropping up in anyone's list. I think he's absolutely it's... insane. Yeah. Outside of anything else, he's absolutely insane to take that job. Yeah, you know, there's three uh, Champions Leagues on the bounce. That's a really high level to match. Plus, it's an ageing team full of massive personalities. Plus, his thing is bringing young players through and developing young players. Well, maybe that's why they brought I him think, in to do just that. I don't think he'll be there long enough. I'd be surprised if he makes it through the season. I think the man's mad. In the meantime, he's, he's missed up the chance to take a, a great Spain team deep into one of the premier football yeah. opportunities ever, a World Cup. And a job that he could have held for a few more years as well with uh, another European Championships around the corner as he brings another the generation through but I'm um, again we, we without knowing what's going on in the camp and how the players are feeling um, and I'd imagine Ramos was fighting too for now for his new bus he, he knows the politics of a football club but without knowing what's going on there it's hard to judge but there isn't much that you really need to do when you're in charge of Spain is there They're, you know how they play you know who their key players are I think Hero will just come in nice calm hand on the tiller and yeah maybe it won't even affect them that much maybe it'll even draw them closer together perhaps perhaps that's what they say anyway. Spain's qualifying, remarkable. 36 goals scored, only three conceded 14 different goal scorers. They had that 6-1 friendly win against Argentina. They destroyed Italy in the qualifying matches. Is there a weakness that you can see, Michael, apart from a bit of upheaval on the bench? My only concern for them is I'm a little bit worried about Busquets and his mobility. I mean, he was never the paciest player at his peak. He's... Uh, I think he's 30 now and he just doesn't look like he covers enough ground to me and I think the system exposes him a little bit more than it used to he doesn't always have someone sitting alongside him um, but otherwise I think they look brilliant from from front to back really mm. Duncan do you make them favourites this year? I don't think they're quite favourites, but they're obviously one of the, the big four. I what guess. do they lack, do you think? That, that some well, a lot of people have. point out that they don't have an out-and-out goal scorer now. I mean, you know, Diego Costa hasn't been great for them recently, but they were the most clinical team in the qualifiers. So, you know, if you've got 11 good players, it doesn't you don't really need an out-and-out you know, goal scorer. Mm. What do you make of Portugal then, who, like Spain, went out of the last World Cup in the group stage? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously this is Ronaldo's tournament. 
to to do something in. He's uh, it's his last chance really to to stamp his authority on a World Cup, um, and you wonder how much that will play in his mind and how that will affect his game. I mean, there's that stat, isn't there? He's had 43 direct free kicks at tournaments and never scored, and he becomes increasingly more desperate to score when as the tournament goes on. And he's only ever scored three goals at World Cups, which is level with Brian. Sorry, he scored only three goals. Three at goals Cups. at World Cups, which makes him level with Brian McBride and Jerry Armstrong. You'd have to to imagine he wants to go above them before he ends his career. This is where it gets really frustrating watching Portugal in tournaments because if you saw uh, Portugal against Egypt in um, a a friendly, I think it was about three or four months ago, Ronaldo won the game with two injury time headers from crosses from Mm, the left flank. So every time they've got a free kick, and as as Duncan says, he's missed scores of them already, you think, "Just, just get forward. Let someone else do this, but let someone else lob it in. You're the best possible target for it. So we'll see how much of Ronaldo wanting him to win and how much of Ronaldo wanting Portugal to win and see how that balance goes out. But probably their, their bigger worry is that their centre-backs are creaking audibly. Right. OK. But in a group which could possibly have a, an atmosphere of uncertainty about it after Lopetegui's exit, do Portugal actually have a pretty decent shot? When you look at the, the names on their, in their squad... Andre Bernardo Silva in particular, Mochino, Charisma can be really dangerous. You've got William Carvalho, plus uh, the man a lot of people predict is going to be the real breakout star here, Gonzalo Guedes. Yeah, they've got some good names. I'm not sure they come together as a team particularly well. I mean, I think they were hugely fortunate two years ago to get to the final and, and win the Euros. I mean, they were lucky not to go out in the group, to be honest. As Ian alludes to, uh, the centre-backs really can't move and I think they'll have to play very deep. But I'm not sure they really have the counter-attacking thrust that they used to. I mean, Ronaldo's not really a counter-attack anymore. He's a penalty box player. Um, and their midfield is a kind of quite neat, tidy, slow build-up kind of play. So I'm just not sure it comes together as a cohesive unit, really. Um, but like, the, like you say, they do have some players who can pull a rabbit from the hat. So All I wouldn't right. rule them out. Anything else you want to pitch in on Spain-Portugal? The only other thing was, as Ian said, Portugal are very reliant on crosses now. I think they put in the highest number of crosses per game in qualifying. And that, you know, as Michael said, Ronaldo is not a counter-attack anymore. He's essentially a big lumbering guy. Spain uh, for you then, is it? uh, No, I still think Portugal got a chance. But it it does come down to which Ronaldo turns up. I Mm. think looking at that group, looking at the fact that Morocco and Iran are both, you know, weaker but still dangerous, I wonder... If, you know, nil-nil, one-all, two teams at some stage of the game are going to get quite comfortable and think, you know what, this is all right. A draw suits here. All right, we'll talk more about Morocco and Iran very shortly. Quick shout-out, though, uh, speaking of Portugal, to our friends at ClassicFootballShirts.co.uk who have furnished us with a Portugal 2004 home kit. That's right, probably stained with tears. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, we'll be giving it away when the Totally Football Quiz returns... When at halftime of the England game, the England game against Tunisia on Monday. Oh, by the way, Classic Football Shirts are also screening every game of the opening 11 days of the World Cup at The Box in Hackney, where they've got a bar and a pop up shop too. Uh, you can find out more at facebook.com Classic Football Shirts. Have you been to The Box, Duncan? Been to A Box, not The Box. Okay. They're quite literally living in a box for the first 11 days. Of the World Cup then. All right. Also on Friday, the other game from Group B is Morocco-Iran, which is being played at the Krestovsky Stadium. How much did this cost? 1.1 billion, apparently. It's got a retractable roof. It's in St. Petersburg, which is the most northerly stadium at the competition. It's designed to look like a spaceship. (laughs) 
could mean anything, of course, that, couldn't it? Um, Michael, you're the fellow who talked up Morocco as being the most underrated team at the World Cup. Have you, are you still confident about that? Well, having listened to everyone else speak about them, maybe they're not so underrated because everyone seems ah. to think that they might do a job. But my main point was that um, to spring a surprise, you generally have to have a good defensive record and they kept six clean sheets from six in qualification. Um, and if they replicate that through this group stage, I expect they'll go through. Do they have the players? Do they have the manager to do that in Ivrenar, Duncan? Yeah, they do. He uh, famously, or uh, inverted commas famously, won the uh, African Cup of Nations with Zambia with the lowest pass completion rate of any team in the entire tournament. So he knows how to grind out results when maybe his team are, you know, inferior to the opposition. Right. So, they haven't. They haven't conceded a single goal in qualifying. Of course, Morocco. No, and he wears nice shirts as well. You're talking them up here. Of course, they didn't win World Cup 2026, but it'll be interesting to see how far they get with this one. Their opening game pits them against another miserly, another team of grinders, if you will, Carlos Kiros's Iran. What do you know about them, Ian? Well, they came very close to stopping Argentina in the last World Cup, and they're going to have to put in performances like that in this group because they've really been been done there. But th- this is a game, uh, I put it to you actually, this will probably be the game of the day because it's basically a knockout match. Oh. You know, if you lose this one, you really are in, in trouble. Um, but it also brings together two of the best players in the Eredivisie, Jakim Baksh, and on the other team, Ziyech. Hakim Ziyech. Hakim Ziyech. Of Ajax. Who I got completely overexcited this morning and watched oh, yeah. the highlights of Estonia against Morocco. Oh, yeah. Um, to find all the previews had him playing off the left, but he was playing off the right this time. Okay. And he executed a glorious outside of the left foot through ball for the second goal. Right. So he does. It's uh, the first time I've ever watched him. He looks very good. He had the most assists in the Eredivisie last mm. season. Yeah. Mm. This is the game of the day then for Ian, and he, he is quite possibly the, the player to watch in that. Yep, fixture. Of course, big problems for Iran, who've been denied any footwear by their by their boot sponsors, Nike. Uh, Nike told them that they wouldn't be able to furnish them with any boots. I think this is only with about a week to go before the tournament. Uh, the official statement, US sanctions mean that as a US company, Nike cannot supply shoes to players in the Iranian national team at this time. So they've been left high and dry. They, they uh, Kirosh said they'd have to maybe borrow shoes. You'd think they could probably go to a They're not sportswear store. Yeah, but you know, normally you'd have loads of different ones, and you've played, and you've broken them in and stuff, haven't you? It's not ideal. Just before it does seem strange. Why are they suddenly doing that, Nike? I wouldn't want to go into the political reasons behind it. Right. Quick prediction then, Michael for Morocco Iran. Nil nil. Ian. Two one Morocco. Right. Okay. Duncan. Uh, one nil Morocco. There you go. Keeping that clean sheet run going. Outstanding. Now the other game taking place on Friday is from Group A. Left over from Thursday's opening shenanigans. It is Egypt against Uruguay in Ekaterinburg. And we'll talk more about that after this. Listeners, you know there's more to football than 52 years of hurt, penalty shootout heartbreak and the inexplicable use of VAR. So... Whilst we give you the game-by-game analysis at this World Cup, for a broader cultural and sociological view of the key narratives from Russia, you want to check out the new season of the Game of Our Lives podcast. Starting today with twice-weekly episodes throughout the World Cup, David Goldblatt and his co-hosts will be breaking down issues like the politics of FIFA, the global industry of World Cup songs, and taking a deep dive into national footballing rivalries. If, like us, you were hooked by the excellent first season, you'll already know that Goldblatt, one of the finest football journalists out there, has a unique curiosity and passion for the beautiful game. And if you didn't, you really should find out what you missed. 
Search for Game of Our Lives with David Goldblatt wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. I'll tell you who did get some boots, Michael. Yep. Mo Salah. Ah, they weren't real boots. They were winter boots because it's his birthday, I think, today, Thursday. So someone gave him some boots. It's not particularly cold there, though, is it? No. uh, They're playing in Ekaterinburg, which is where, of course, the Romanovs met their Mm. bloody end. It is the most easterly outpost of this World Cup in venue terms, 1,771 kilometres east of Moscow. Particularly if you're at one end of the stadium. Oh, yeah. It's probably <laughs> another kilometre or so, isn't it? Yeah. So tell us, Duncan, uh, paint a picture for anyone so, who hasn't got it in there. It seems the stadium was deemed not quite big enough for a, a jamboree as big as the World Cup, so they've extended the two stands behind the goal in a in a, what looks like a a temporary fashion. Um, it looks a, a, a bit unusual because it it's sort of like, extends out the ground. Do you ever see someone like who they're, they're moving house and they've got one of those fold-down boot doors and they've just basically <laughs> folded it down they've got a ladder sticking out the back of their car as they drive along? Yeah. That's what the stands look like. And a, and a spokesman said, um, these temporary stands are really very stable, which <laughs> to me is almost kind of a little bit too overregnant. Right. You'd be out of there and down the aisles if someone starts that stamping thing. Oh, yeah. yeah I'd, I'd, I'd not fancy that. OK. Now, big question, of course, bigger question about this game is how is Mo Salah? Who's got the latest? I, Ian. Well, they're saying that he's going to play. Um, uh, Hector Cooper said, I can almost assure you 100% that he will play. Uh, I don't think he's fit. Do you see that footage of someone trying to come along and give him a hug? And he, mm. was, he was visibly you know, recoiling. So he's obviously still in pain. I don't think, I don't think he's going to make this. And I, there's I the reckon, danger that they rush him back too early and compromise other games. I think we should do a sweepstake on what minute he goes off holding his shoulder, Brian Robson style because I really don't think he's going to make it. Oh, that's rotten. Also, because they really struggle without him. Mm. Great with him, not so much without him. Yeah, I mean, there, there are players in there who, who are decent. This Trezeguet kid looks, you know, pretty raw, but mm. there's there's something about him, and there's a very decent spine to the team. They defend very well. They don't concede many either. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they're a completely different team with Mo Salah in it. I think the stat was that he scored 71% of their goals in qualifying, which... Yeah. If I'm remembering that right, that's just ridiculous. Five numbers. out of eight in the last stage. So. Oh right. Yeah, he's he's a key man. All right. It's huge this game because we're talking this up as potential to go through from what looks like quite a, a weak group of, of teams. Russia obviously with a, a great start. If you go through in second place, interestingly, you'll probably meet up with Spain in the last sixteen, which if it's Egypt would mean Salah against Ramos again. That'd be yeah. interesting. Mm. Mm. I'm sure Ramos will. He'll obviously remember what happened, so he'll be careful around Salah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want a fun stat, Duncan? You've given us so many. Here's one for you. Uh, the goalkeeper SML Hadari is a year older than the actual World Cup trophy. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk Uruguay. Are they an actual dark horse then, Michael? They're a decent team. I mean, they're more technically proficient than they have been in, in previous tournaments when they've generally been quite physical slash dirty at times. Um, and they've got two of the best strikers in the competition. As I've said previously, I do have a slight reservation or a slight concern that those two basically have to play up front now. I don't think they have the legs to play out wide. And when you look at how Tavares has got Uruguay through past competitions, it's often been 
different systems, different formations, players in surprise positions. Whereas this time, I think they're a little bit more wedded to 4-4-2, which is not how they've generally gone about things. Right. Really strong at the back as well. Looking much more technical in midfield. And part of that is Lucas Torreira, who... who who Arsenal fans will be really keen to see in action. Yeah, he's a very talented player and um, a bit more exciting than Arsenal's uh, previous capture of Licksteiner. Right. He's a very good player, but maybe not someone who will get the fans excited. Yeah, who's more from the kind of Robbie Williams kind of uh, <laughs> yeah, era. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. OK, uh, well, so uh, even if Mo Salah's fit, do you fancy Uruguay to, to kind of do this with some ease? I don't because I think even if he plays, he's, he's not going to be 100% fit. Right. Um, so I really do think that gives the initiative to Uruguay. I think Uruguay will play on the front foot and dominate this game. And I think Egypt will play on the counter. And obviously, if there's one player you want playing on the counter, it's Salah. So without wanting to go on about it, I think his fitness is just by far the crucial factor here. OK. All right, then. Likely to play, almost certain to play, according to Hector Couper. Yep. Yeah, OK. Not almost certain to finish. <laughs> OK. Indeed. Did you go along with Michael's take there, Duncan? Yeah, I think, I mean, Uruguay are unbeaten against African teams at World Cups, but mm. that's partly down to a certain Luis Suarez uh, handling <laughs> technique. So, yeah, let's hope he doesn't have to do that again. Well, or let's hope he does. Will it be their first clash against an African side since that Ghana game? Believe so. Right. Well, that's kicking off one o'clock in Ekaterinburg, way out east. Before we wrap things up, Time to get the odds on the matches that are on their way. Producer Ben here, speaking to Paddy Power. Thank you, Jim. I'm joined by Lee Price. Lee, you're looking a bit peaky. Have you got World Cup fever? One day in, I'm already gone. Uh, I'm so excited and I'm fully in it now. All right, well, let's look ahead to tomorrow. Egypt are playing Uruguay. What's going to happen in this one? Is Salah back? Is Salah going to fire? So I'm not sure that Salah will be back, but if he is back, he's favourite to score first for Egypt at 6-1. to one. Uh, And that's the same price for Egypt to win, so they're quite outsiders for this. The draw's 13-5, Uruguay are 4-7, so odds on. Uh, dark horse of this competition, I think. All right, Morocco versus Iran looks like uh, a surprisingly interesting game, actually. What's uh, <laughs> what the odds going doing in that one? Yeah, um, last time I spoke to you, you said Morocco were your, your tip for the tournament, and I laughed at you. I listened to the pod back and I laughed at myself. They're five to four to win this match. They're favourites. Uh, Iran are eleven to four, and the draws fifteen to eight. I couldn't pick it either way, though. Okay, what about the big one, Portugal <laughs> versus Spain? Surely uh, Ronaldo is going to be your first goal scorer here. Yeah, we need an early tournament big one, and this is it. Uh, Ronaldo is favourite to score first, and if he does score first, we have a money back special, which is money back on all losing correct score, goal score, and what odds Paddy markets if Big Ron scores. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. It's 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, we're back straight after the final game on Friday, which is Spain against Portugal. If you've got any questions or comments for us, make sure you send them through to us on our Facebook page or on Twitter at The Totally Show. Follow us too, if you like. I hope you've enjoyed this opening show. Duncan Alexander, thank you so much for being here. Ian McIntosh, you as well, and Michael Cox. And, of course, you, listener. Have yourself a super Friday, and we'll catch you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. Subscribe now and get the latest episode delivered right to your phone for free. And seeing as you're still here, here's an extract from the new Gazza in Italy audiobook. It's written by Daniel Storey, read by James Richardson and published by HarperCollins. Have a listen and if you like what you hear, you can download it from iTunes or Audible for just £4.99. Remember, it's exclusively an audiobook and it's called Gazza in Italy.
The 31 days between the 8th of June and the 8th of July 1990 were English football's enlightenment. Not only was this the first time an England team had reached the World Cup semi-final on foreign soil, when for a few precious days we truly did believe, but Italia 90 precipitated the birth of a new age for our national game. From its previous position as a cultural outpost during the 1980s, English football was suddenly positioned at the forefront of social life. Books, television programmes and even theatrical productions with football as their central tenant were all successful. People began to consider football as an art form. Italia 90 also marked the crossover between football as a working-class game and middle-class pursuit, with satellite television inaugurated and plans for the establishment of the Premier League, for better or for worse, in place. Out of the darkness and into the light, even if that light became too blinding for some. For those four and a half weeks, a global sporting event played out in glorious technicolour. The green of the grass felt greener, the white of England's shirts seemed brighter than ever before. The television coverage presented Italy with a shimmer and sheen, as if it were a month-long dream sequence. We cried, laughed and sat spellbound as Toto Scilacci ran, Roger Miller danced, Frank Reichard spat, Bobby Robson jigged and Gaza cried. 25,000 hairs on the necks of 25 million people stood on end every time Nessun Dorma was played, as if standing to be serenaded by Luciano Pavarotti's majestic version of the aria. England fell to glorious failure, just as they had four years previously, but the emphasis this time was on the glory. If our eyes were suddenly open to the possibility of footballing multiculturalism, Italia 90 also resold the image of English football and the English football supporter. Papers released in 2012 revealed that the government, still led by Margaret Thatcher, had considered withdrawing the national team from the 1990 World Cup over concerns that it would become a natural focus for hooliganism. Instead, the travelling hordes proved once and for all that if you treat people as adults, they are far more likely to behave like them. Transport, accommodation and match tickets were available at reasonable prices, a world away from the corporate homogeny that now envelops each major tournament. There were impromptu kickabouts in town squares and late-night parties to celebrate good results and forget bad ones. The tournament did not pass without trouble, but the behaviour of England supporters was appreciated by the Italians. A country had prepared for war, it got the odd skirmish. As Pete Davis, author of the seminal All Played Out, told The Guardian in 2015, prior to Italia 90, football in England was perceived as a squalid, hooligan-ridden, embarrassing sump of gormless violence. Our team was crap, our supporters were worse, and you did not talk about it over dinner. Yet Robson's squad of 22 players altered preconceptions. Only two outfielders in the squad were aged 30 or over, and while they limped through the group stages, England were the top scorers in the knockout stages. For the first time in years, our team played with flair and solidity, rather than lurching ineffectively between the two. FIFA's technical report on the tournament noted the team's ability to adapt and improvise with each other away from their league clubs. The team having been absent from European competition for five years before the tournament, you can almost detect the surprise in those typed words. The poster boy for this feel-good wave was Paul Gascoigne, a young Geordie with a glint in his eye and magic in his feet. England's most junior player at Italian 90 was also their best. If an entire country came of age over those 31 days, this young central midfielder became a man, and the man became a superstar. Move over Gascoigne, Gazza was born. What stuck out most about Gascoigne and Robson's team was that he was distinctly continental in style. 
He was neither England's first flair player nor its first entertainer, but he was our first true street footballer. His technical ability when slaloming past opponents in centre midfield was unsurpassed by any other Englishman of his generation, while his raw natural talent set him apart from almost any other player in world football. Mastery of the ball was boring for Gaza, remembers former Liverpool goalkeeper Ray Clements. Volleying the ball into the net from 30 yards out, he'd do it. Then he'd say, I know, I'll do it with my eyes closed. He'd do that too. Then he'd try and find different ways to miskick the ball into the net. Already a winner of the PFA Young Player of the Year award after a season that earned him a move from his hometown club Newcastle United to Tottenham, Gascoigne had announced himself as an England star two months before the World Cup against Czechoslovakia at Wembley. He provided three assists in a 4-2 win after England had fallen behind, alleviating concerns that he was a practical joker first and talented footballer second. Had he allowed his devil to take over before the tournament, he may not have made the plane. In Italy, Gascoigne stole the show. To hear the full story of Gaza in Italy, download the exclusive audiobook on Audible or iTunes.